Hey everyone. Today's book predicts a wild future where humans are immortal and our brains are made up of hyper-intelligent machines, so we can spend that brain power on, I don't know, canceling people? Today's book is The Singularity is Near by Ray Kurzweil, who, at 74 years old, had better hope it's pretty near. <laughs> I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father... And a futurist, which basically just means that I like to read about how big the next flat screen TV is going to be at Costco. <laughs> and I'm David Vance. I think singularity is the word techies use when they're too embarrassed to admit they believe in heaven. The Singularity is Near argues that soon technology can solve basically all our problems. <laughs> Call me when there's a vaccine for polio. <laughs> And this is The Book Pile. Damagier says, I don't even need to read the review, just the subject line for it says, Very good. I listened to all of them in under six days. Wow. Yeah. What does that come to? That comes to seven hours of our podcast per day, <laughs> which is even more of it than I listen to. <laughs> I mean, to go through essentially 90 episodes in the time that it took to create the world, that is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, big announcement, June 4th, Provo, Utah, at the Hive Collaborative Theater. Me and Dave will have our next live podcast. We'll be roasting a clips from the Twilight series, ever heard of it? And I'll be opening the show <laughs> with 20 minutes of brand new stand-up. Go to thehivecollaborative.com for tickets, or you can also go to kellenerskin.com for tickets, which might be easier since you probably already have my website as your homepage. <laughs> we know it's another Twilight book, but we promise there will be plenty of fresh jokes. <laughs> Finally, our next two books are The Illustrated Man and The Inner Game of Tennis. <laughs> yeah, it's called Ping Pong. <laughs> And if you want to see me live by myself, I'm going to be at the Pittsburgh Improv this week, May 27th through the 29th. And then in June, I'll be at Bananas in Rutherford, New Jersey, June 24th and 25th. It's not a comedy club, just a, just a pile of fruit <laughs> <laughs> that I'll be telling jokes in. Go to kellerskin.com for tickets again. <laughs> All right. And without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from The Singularity is near <laughs> any book title becomes creepier if you whisper the last words <laughs> harry potter and the sorcerer's stone <laughs> 1984 <laughs> love in the time of cholera <laughs> All right, lesson one. The future of consciousness may be unimaginable. This is a short one. He gives these examples of what your brain could be like when it's hooked up to smart machines and the internet. Like you could access all human knowledge, or you could share someone's consciousness, or for the first time you could have a fully hackable brain. <laughs> <laughs> like imagine parenting, and your kid's eyes roll into the back of her head, and you're like, ah, someone hacked Sophie again. <laughs> 
Anyway, he gives examples of what a brain might be like, and he points out, human neurons fire really slowly. What if you design an AI that has neurons that fire a million times faster, meaning every minute it could do about two years of thinking? And not only that, he says, what if it could improve itself so you just have this snowballing cascade of hyperintelligence? Do you think at that point parents would stop bragging as much about their kids being gifted? <laughs> All right, before I say this lesson, Kellen, I'm going to read some names, and I want you to guess what they have in common. <clears throat> Kim Jong-un, Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Narendra Modi. Okay, do you have any guess? Um, they were all unanimously voted into office. <laughs> <laughs> That's a list of people who, every single day, have to stay at least partly sane for us to not die in nuclear war. <laughs> and I don't think I would take that bet. <laughs> that's, that's not even everyone who has a launch code. That's just the most famous ones. Oh. That brings me to lesson two. We may underestimate the chance of apocalypse. <laughs> he spends this whole book convincing you tech can make heaven on Earth, and he makes a pretty compelling case— but also, every time he tried to convince me an apocalypse wouldn't happen, I became more convinced it might happen. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that Ray Kurzweil is just a coy Skynet? <laughs> I'll give an example. He's talking about nanobots, and he gives the gray goo scenario, which basically, nanobots are out of control, and they're reproducing so fast that they just consume anything with carbon. And little spoiler, there's carbon in your eyeballs <laughs> and any other body parts you enjoy having. <laughs> and just so I'm clear, they not just consume it, but reproduce immediately, right? So they're just creating even yeah. more of themselves. They're turning anything with carbon into more of them and less of you. <laughs> so Kurzweil says, yeah, that could happen with like a hack, but we'll have great cybersecurity by then. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Because we read, this is how they tell me the world ends, and it seems like everything is super hackable. <laughs> like, if a, if a program has 10 million lines of code, it seems so much easier to slip a bug into one line than it is to defend all 10 million lines. <laughs> yeah, I, I've had zero faith in humanity since going to Costco and seeing glass containers that were glued to the shelf on display but all of their closable lids were stolen. <laughs> As if someone just needed lids to these very specific containers. That's the mom in the King Solomon story who's like, yeah, cut the baby in half. <laughs> anyway, I bring this up. I bring this up because before the 1940s, no human had the ability to kill everyone on Earth. Oh, wow. And then science was like, here's how you could do it. <laughs> So right now we have one invention that could kill everyone. What if we had like four? What if it were like nukes, nanobots, AI, and genetic printing of viruses? Anyway, all I know is things are going to be interesting. <laughs> also, I don't think people know how close we've come just with nukes. If you want to be freaked out, look up broken arrow incidents, which include all the times we've accidentally dropped nukes out of planes. <laughs> Or uh, look up Stanislav Petrov, who probably saved the world by disobeying an order that would have launched nukes at the U.S. Oh, yeah. I just love a good coward. 
I'm kidding. I think he took a huge risk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, I'm not anti-tech. I think tech does a ton of good. But even on the non-apocalypse side, my brother Ben had a professor from China who said, you know, smartphones are an authoritarian government's dream. You know where everyone is. You can listen to them. You can read their texts. You can see them on camera. Mm -hmm. So I can't wait for the singularity so government can also hear my thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson three. Beware of illogical optimism. Sometimes I'll just stand at the entrance of a casino and greet people with that statement. (laughs) Casinos are psychologically genius because they've made an entire building where every choice is a bad choice and feels like a good choice. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a quote straight from Kurzweil in the introduction to the book. I regard someone who understands the singularity and has reflected on its implications on his or her own life as a singularitarian. And (laughs) first of all... Sounds like a movie trying to reference the Unitarian Church without getting sued. Well, (laughs) it does make this sound like a religion, which is... yeah kind of what it needs to be, because in this book, he makes predictions, and I love reading about the future. Um, mm-hmm. It's I find it fascinating and interesting and a little hopeful and a little scary, but he is only <laughs> optimistic about it. Yeah. And to me, there's two problems with it. One of them is that you start to erase your own rationality when you want something to happen. It's a much more biased way of researching something. It's like that sunk cost idea that I believe yeah. that anyone who has ever financed and constructed a bomb shelter sort of wants a nuclear attack <laughs> to happen, right? <laughs> because when else are you going to use all that cool stuff? It's like that quote from Robert Mallet. How many pessimists end up desiring the thing they fear in order to prove that they are right? (laughs) (laughs) With each of these books, I feel like Kurzweil just continues to dig another hole for that bomb shelter. (laughs) You ever talk to like a stalwart libertarian who has invested a ton in Bitcoin and they almost salivate at the idea of the dollar losing all value? (laughs) 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 Like... They predict it's going to happen. They kind of want for it to happen. Uh And it's like, oh, I forgot that none of your loved ones have dollars. (laughs) (laughs) None of your grandparents have pensions in U.S. currency. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be a great see I told you so when the world is on fire. (laughs) You'll be able to buy so many extinguishers with your Bitcoin. (laughs) So in the in the book, he makes these predictions, but he's constantly skipping over steps and ignoring them. And to me, the biggest <laughs> one is with reverse engineering the human brain, which is essentially what the entire singularity hinges on, because uh-huh. the, the definition of the singularity is when machine intelligence surpasses human intelligence. But to me, this is like the equivalent of going up to a scientist and saying, hey, you should invent a time machine. And he's like, but how? And then you're like, you know, we, we've had advances in quantum physics. Just make a wormhole or something. Cool. Call me when you're finished. <laughs> you tuck $2 into his shirt pocket. <laughs> 
<laughs> because Kurzweil's whole deal is that once we're able to make an AI computer that's indistinguishable from the human brain, then we will somehow make an even smarter one that'll solve all our problems and tech will improve at a rate a billion times faster than it is now. And then all of us will be part human, part nanobot computer, immortal cyborg, and it'll, it'll be amazing or horrifying <laughs> if you ask a normal person. But what he skips over in all of this is just how we will reverse engineer the brain. Because keep in mind, this was 2004. He said that as of then, they had scanned a dozen of the regions of the brain, but quote, within two decades, we will have a detailed understanding of how all the regions of the human brain will work. So we got two years on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and also, he skipped over the part where understanding how the brain works translates somehow into being able to make one. <laughs> like, it's, it's 2022. We can't even make non-dairy cheese that tastes real. But you're telling me that we're on the cusp of synthesizing a human brain. And among so much else, he just massively simplifies the brain as if it were a computer, which it's not. Like, he makes countless predictions on what computational power will be every decade. And to his credit, he's been close with those. But the mistake, again, is the leap, right, to generalize that the human brain is simply a computer, and that once we make a computer as powerful as a brain, we'll have a human brain. But we won't. We'll just have a computer. Ten years ago, Fujitsu made a supercomputer that had four times the computing power of the human brain. And we still don't know why we hiccup. <laughs> I would love if his book has all these little footnotes about like making a new brain. And he's like, give me a man, woman, and nine months. <laughs> I'll make you a brain. <laughs> Using a, a new 3D printer. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this has a lot to do with the kind versus wicked learning environments that the book Peak talks about. Like when they took that Watson computer that beat everyone at Jeopardy and drove it to that cancer research facility and it couldn't do anything for them because it wasn't made to solve problems, right? It was just made to recognize questions that it already had the answers to. <laughs> Anyway, the, the, the point is that brains are so much more complicated than memory machines. They're not isomorphic with computers, if I can use a fancy word that Dave will understand. Mm. They're not just a cluster of neurons firing like circuits. The director of biological engineering at MIT, Alan Jasonoff, he wrote a dry but fascinating book on this called The Biological Mind. Have you read that? No. All right. Kellen 1, Dave 730. Uh, where, uh, you immediately lost your train of thought. <laughs> You're so unfamiliar with this terrain. I was. <laughs> the dog has caught his tail. <laughs> it's hard to balance on the peak. <laughs> and I'm back down. Anyway, it's just this book where he discusses in depth that we, we're still discovering how virtually impossible it may ever be to understand the brain. That it, it's not just a computer, but this emotional, chemically run yeah. organ that relies on and interacts with its surrounding environment. And it may actually have more connections in it than there are atoms in the universe. Wow. So with all of that, Kurzweil is still like, sure. Anyway, by 2030. The AI robots will invent us some light speed spaceships. On to chapter seven. 
the book does leave itself open to wildly different interpretations because there was an article a few years ago that said, yeah, like almost none of the predictions have come true. And then Kurzweil wrote a response and he was like, if you look at it this way, 84% of the predictions have come true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Nostradamus. (laughs) I didn't look deep enough to say whose interpretation seemed more validated, Mm -hmm. but I know as one example of humans musically jamming with computers, which was one of his predictions, he listed Guitar Hero. (laughs) (laughs) And for another one, for his prediction of a computer of a certain size existing, he counted all of Google as a computer. That's so lame. That's such like a political slash childish response move. That's like saying uh, someone saying like, I'm going to live for a thousand years. And then when they die at 85, they're like, yes, but the atoms in my body were a billion years old. <laughs> it's like, come on, you know, that's not what you meant. <laughs> All right. Lesson four. It's Easy to make fun of false predictions. Now, if you didn't notice my inflection, I just said that sentence with an asterisk because I, I wanted to admit that, yes, it, it it's easier to mock someone's bet on the World Series when it's all over than it is to make your own bet at the start of the season. I get that. But Kurzweil, he makes his predictions with so much confidence without so much as a maybe or a perhaps that I feel like he kind of deserves aggressive criticism or at the very least <laughs> yeah. some funny insults. <laughs> He talks about the future like he's trying to sell it to you. (laughs) I know he's a professor, but it's like less Einstein and more Harold Hill. Is that the music man? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, we got trouble, my friends. (laughs) Trouble right here in the past. (laughs) One time on a sketch show, I pitched a sketch It's just a musical parody of that, well, you got trouble, my friends, song. I found out at the very end of the pitch, almost no one in the room knew the original. (laughs) And I can't tell you, I can't tell you how unfunny that parody is if you think someone just invented this weird, like, speak song. (laughs) There are also few things less fun than pitching a sketch that A, gets few laughs at the beginning, and B, is just you singing to a room of your friends. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I find it interesting that Hugh Jackman, he plays a lot of great salesmen, right? The Music Man on Broadway, The Greatest Showman, Jean Valjean. Wait, what did he sell in Les Mis? The fact that he really needed treasure from a priest. (laughs) (laughs) Just listen to this. Keep in mind, this is 2003, 2004. Quote, ultimately, we will be able to determine the precise nutrients each body needs and introduce them directly into the bloodstream by special metabolic nanobots. This technology will be reasonably mature by the late 2020s. So it's like, cool, Ray. I... (laughs) I can't wait till they spring the surprise technology on us in four years. (laughs) Anyway, making fun of Kurzweil. To me, it's just, it's like how it's easier to talk trash to a conceited athlete. (laughs) Because here's another one. 
he talks about going to this conference with scientists discussing the future and just his arrogance. He talks about this interaction. He goes, quote, James Watson, the co-discoverer of DNA, said that within the next 50 years, we would have drugs that would enable us to eat as much as we wanted without gaining weight. So he's talking to this guy. <laughs> Right. The guy who discovered Jurassic Park. <laughs> Wouldn't it be so wonderful and innocent if that's what you really think? <laughs> <laughs> so that he dares argue with this national hero. <laughs> Kurzweil says, I replied, 50 years? We've accomplished this already in mice. So drugs for human use will be available in five to 10 years. And that was 21 years ago. <laughs> so I sure hope Dr. Watson feels silly. <laughs> and this isn't the only time in the book that he tries to maintain credibility in a prediction by giving you a launching point of, we already did this in an animal, uh -huh. and then sort of vaguely saying, so obviously it'll convert to people pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think people realize how difficult it is to get findings to translate from mice to humans. <laughs> Even though you think that would be our intuition that we're pretty different from mice. <laughs> I know I've already brought this up, but there's that great Twitter account called Just Says In Mice, <laughs> where it will retweet like a USA Today story about a study that says, scientists find a cure for colon cancer. And then it just says, in mice. <laughs> I think intuitively, we just know that there isn't a translation. Because when I buy shampoo that says not tested on animals, I'm never like, well, then how do I know it's going to work? <laughs> Unless I see a white lab rat with <laughs> lustrous fur. <laughs> <laughs> So between these nutrient nanobots and these miracle eat-whatever-you-want pills, I just feel bad for any <laughs> singularitarians who took this seriously in 2004 and just <laughs> let themselves go. <laughs> because they just thought that like little robots would take care of their insides by the time Justin Bieber was an adult. <laughs> any, any second now. <laughs> <laughs> The last chapter of this book is seventy six nanobots of your cholesterol <laughs> and a hundred and ten nanobots in your brain. <laughs> now imagine pitching that to a room that has never heard the original. <laughs> All right, random facts. He's listing things that AIs can already do. And one of them is improvised jazz. And I'm like, hold up. First, let me hear the jazz. <laughs> Anyone can improvise jazz if your standards are really low. <laughs> if you want a delightful treat, go to YouTube. Look up John Benjamin, Jazz Daredevil. Mm -hmm. He does a jazz album where he hires these great jazz musicians for his piano jazz album. But he doesn't play piano. <laughs> And none of the musicians know that until they hear him play. 
So one of the worst setups for a, a comedian is being asked to open for a band. And one of the reasons being <laughs> that the people coming to see the band never know that there is going to be a comedian. <laughs> People already don't like watching the opening bands to the band that they want to <laughs> <Yeah>. see. <laughs> so imagine stripping that all down to a guy just talking. Oh, man. The riskiest joke that I ever told in that situation, I was pl uh, I got asked to open for this jazz band that I'd never heard of. It's this beautiful outdoor vineyard amphitheater. There's... 2,500 people, and I walk out to barely applause, and I said, I was really nervous when I got asked to uh, open for a band, because honestly, people usually aren't into this sort of thing. But I think it's going to go well tonight. I think you'll find me entertaining, um, because your standards are low enough that you think jazz is fun. <laughs> and then you said... And I can also scat. And then you squatted down and pooped on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a direct quote from the book. Speaking of this Nostradamus side of him, quote, beyond the next two decades, we will use nanobots to augment and replace our organs. Beyond? <laughs> you could make any prediction. Beyond the next two decades means either in the next 20 or 900 years. <laughs> One of the reasons I have questions about all his perfect predictions is there's a part where he's talking about t pandemics, and he's not really worried because of how SARS went. He says, you know, don't worry. We used quarantine. We used masks. We made tests. We had a global <laughs> response. Things were fine. <laughs> With these predictions, it's, it's fun to see what he can twist retroactively and the <laughs> stuff that he just can't. Like he said uh -huh. that East Asia's poverty had gone from 300 million people in the 90s to 220 by 2004, by the time the book came out, and that by 2015, it would be down to 20 million. Uh, well, <laughs> we're back up to 300 million plus. I just want to know oh, gosh. like, what his... <laughs> well, because he would say, true poverty is life without love. <laughs> He's like, well, I mean, my definition of East... <laughs> Something that's interesting to me, too, is that when he's talking about how in the future you'll be able to be a part of virtual reality, you can be anyone who you want to be. And this is something that I couldn't have predicted. But I think what we've found with social media is that people don't want to be other people. They just <laughs> want you to think that they're way better than they actually are. <laughs> Which is a form of other people, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. <laughs> he talks about the Drake equation, which is a way to estimate how many alien civilizations there are. Mm. And I realized it's one of those equations you can make say whatever you want, because there are just so many assumptions, because mm. you have to assume, okay, there's this many stars, and this percentage of stars have planets, and this percentage of planets can support life. Anyway, the Drake equation I want to have is... At what birthday is a teenage girl so old that Drake stops texting her? <laughs> I've been thinking about what happens if and when skills become downloadable. I read a story about the best Go player in the world playing an AI, 
and the sadness he felt when a machine was able to beat him just overnight. Mm. So imagine being the best violinist in the world. You spent your whole life refining this. And then a rich frat bro can just download the skill you have. <laughs> He's like, hey, what you playing? Paganini? I can play Paganini. <laughs> so the blood-brain barrier, or the BBB, it's essentially a thick filter that prevents most foreign materials from entering the brain. But you already know this, Dave, since you quit medical school. <laughs> but Kurzweil discusses ideas that have been pitched for nanotechnology to breach the BBB to enhance neural activity. And the scariest one to me was this idea that they would have nanobots approach the barrier, tear a giant hole in it, go through it, <laughs> and then mend it once they've all gone through, which is insane. <laughs> it's like saying, hey, how can we break into this bank? And someone's like, hey, we can get a skinny person to slip through this partially open window. And another guy's like, yeah, or we could drive a tank through the wall <laughs> and then rebuild the wall once we're inside it. Using the tank. <laughs> also, when I talk about nanobots being hackable, just imagine that someone hacks the nanobots in the president's brain, and it's like, hey, we will kill you if you don't meet exactly these terms. Also, I think just like for the pettiest of things, right? Like you're late for work at Best Buy, and you're like, oh man, sorry everyone, nanobots. <laughs> Classic nanobots. <laughs> There's this great quote in the book. There are no hard problems, only problems that are hard to a certain level of intelligence. And isn't that a great line to use in a fight with your spouse? <laughs> <laughs> and my final takeaway is that to me... This book is like how any doctor can write any book, no matter how crazy. <laughs> and the people who read the book just go, it might sound crazy, but it was written by a doctor. Here's another fun prediction. Again, this is the early 2000s. By the end of this decade, computers will disappear as distinct physical objects with displays built into our eyeglasses and electronics woven into our clothes. <laughs> I just want to fast forward to just eight years later when everyone's glued to their iPhone 3 and Google Glass was a funny joke. <laughs> and you push him on it and he's like, when I said computers would disappear, I lost my computer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from The Singularity is Near. One, the future of consciousness may be unimaginable. Two, we may underestimate the chance of apocalypse. Three, beware of illogical optimism. Four, it's easy to make fun of bad predictions. And five, I mean, Green Eggs and Ham was also written by a doctor. <laughs> Doing comedy before a band, it seems like being a Spotify ad. 